We've been uh, periodically looking through the book of Colossians together on Sunday mornings. And we've arrived at a section that we're going to look at now in verse 20 and 21. Before reading that, just to give a brief recap, I suppose, a summary of where we've got to so far. Broadly speaking, Paul has been reminding the Colossians that Jesus is the only Lord. Jesus is the Son of God. And he is the person through whom we can have a relationship with the Father in heaven. They may have regarded other wise teachers or other spiritual powers as helpful, but Paul saying, no, it's Jesus. We have a relationship with God always and only through his Son, Jesus Christ, and by the grace that he's demonstrated in dying for us on the cross, uh, that our sins might be forgiven. So we've come then to chapter 3, and chapter 3 in effect is saying this, if then Jesus is the Lord of your life, here are all the many ways in which it should make a difference. And so he's been saying things like, put to death therefore what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion and so on. So if Jesus Christ is your Lord, that will be evidence in you putting to death some of those things, in putting off anger. It's not consistent. If Jesus is Lord, then there are certain things that match and there are certain things that don't match. And so we've looked at that and we've started to look at other characteristics that are kind of fitting if Jesus is our Lord. So being compassionate, being kind, being humble, putting on uh, love, getting into the word of God, just being overflowing in thanks, singing, and so on. And then we've arrived, last time we were in Colossians, at this part here. Uh, Wives submit to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives, and do not be harsh with them. That was the couple of verses we looked at last time. And so addressing in particular uh, wives and husbands, the married relationship. So God comes to save us and to change and to transform every aspect of our lives, that we're not just living kind of a spiritual life over here and doing just whatever seems best uh, Monday to Friday over there. No, we're coming to give our whole lives to him, and so Paul therefore addresses these specific relationships. Let's read verse 20 and 21, which is what we're going to focus on today. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, Do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. And uh, it was only the other week that I realized today is Father's Day. And so in God's little scheme, we've arrived at this point in Colossians, and I was greatly encouraged as I realized, ah, we're going to be addressing children and fathers this morning, in particular parents as well, uh, in general. And it just so happens to be Father's Day. I was quite chuffed with that when I realized the... uh, Uh, the the coincidence. So first we're going to look at children. I'm going to be speaking to you children. Now I think Paul here is addressing children who are still along the way to growing up. So whatever age you are, but you still think, yeah, I know that I'm growing up still, then this is applying to you. Especially if you still live with your parents. So, yeah, speaking to you. (laughs) Um, so I don't want to be too specific in terms of putting an age on that, but I think that includes uh, primary and secondary school aged people. Interesting that Paul is directly addressing you. Paul is talking to you. If you consider yourself to be in that kind of broad age gap, Paul is directly 
speaking to you. He's not just speaking to adults about you. He's not just speaking to your parents about you. Paul's expectation is that when the church gets together, there are people of all ages. And there are children. And so Paul, th- Paul addresses you and says, you, you've got a responsibility. You might be five, you might be 15. You've got a responsibility in the church. God, re- God regards you as an important part of his family, of what he's doing. And so Paul here is directly talking to you. It's not like a situation where, say, you go around to, uh, you and your family go around to an, another family's house and they offer you uh, something to drink to start with. And so they speak to your mum first. They say, what would you like to drink? They speak to your dad and they say, what would you like to drink? And then they speak to mum and dad again. What would, what would he or she like to drink? What, a slightly dismissive way. What, what, what would, what's best for them? What, what would they like? And obviously your parents might have a say in what you drink. But it's like, oh, you can speak to me. You can, people can speak to you and have something to say and ask you questions and see what you are after. So... Paul is speaking to children. You may not feel absolutely enthralled with the message he has to bring to you. Because he says this, children, obey your parents in everything. Now last time we were here, we were looking at the word submit. And we saw the word submit is like somebody voluntarily sort of putting themselves in subjection to someone else. Voluntarily kind of preferring someone else's leadership. The word obey here is much is stronger than that. So there is a, a strong word, God saying, children, obey your parents. Now, God has always been interested in children obeying their parents. So we see in Exodus 20, when God was giving Ten Commandments, in Exodus 20, verse 12, he arrives at this one, Honour your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land, and that the, that the Lord your God is giving you. Honour your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land. So, right there, at the beginning, there was an instruction in the Ten Commandments to children. To honour your parents, honour your, your father and mother. And we see it here, similarly, in terms of obedience to your parents. Now, I think... Uh, that there are three good reasons why your parents tell you to do stuff. Overall, kind of quite broad, three good reasons. And so maybe your parents will be looking around just seeing now if you can take notes of these three good reasons why your parents tell you to do certain things, but maybe tell you not to do other things. In other words, they give you instructions. First reason, I think, is this. They want you to be safe and to learn how to be safe. So, in other words, for an example, your parents, at some stage, maybe they've already done this, will want to teach you how to cross the road. And that's not to, uh, just to spoil your fun, but is to teach you to be safe. They may tell you where you can play, and where you can't play. And I can remember... A kind of classic example of you know, flying a kite. It's very important that you pick the right place to fly a kite. You might think, oh, there's a good amount of space here, and the wind is really good, I'm on top of a hill. This would be the perfect place to fly a kite. 
And it might be that it's your mum and dad who just look up and realise there are electricity pylons around. And if you flew your kite around there, you might get an unfriendly zap as your kite hits a pylon. So your mum and dad, hopefully, have got their eyes out to see, okay, what is safe here? What is safe for my children? If you're older, issue of safety might be in this. How late you stay out. Where you go and who you go with and how long you're up. So it's an issue of safety. Your parents don't want to ruin your fun, necessarily. (laughs) Maybe they do, I don't know. Anyway, leave that one for you. Uh, They don't want to ruin your fun, necessarily. They're interested in your safety. And it would not be a good thing if they didn't care about where you were and what you were doing. So there's a proverb which talks about this. Proverbs 29, verse 15, has something to say. It says this, uh, The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. So it would not be a good thing if your parents ignored you. It would not be a good thing if they said, Yeah, go and do whatever you like. Uh, Come back home whenever you like. Go to bed whenever you like. Play wherever you like. It would not be a good thing. So it's a good thing if you've got parents, you've got a mum and dad, who are willing to tell you stuff like, do do that, but please don't do that. That's not safe. That's not good. It won't go well with you. Life will not go well with you if you go that way. And so that is one reason why parents tell you to do things and not to do things. Because they want you to be safe, They also, second reason, they want you to learn how to live. They want you just to learn how to live. There will be a day when you are no longer living with your parents. And so they know that day is coming and that you're going to be more, as it were, on your own, needing to take care of yourself. So this might mean, for example, here's an example of why, of how your, your parents might want you to learn how to live. They might teach you the importance of brushing your teeth. Absolutely vital. Absolutely fundamental, foundational principle for life. Brush your teeth. Um, Amen. Yes. (laughs) I have to say, I struggled with this one um, when I was little. I I really struggled with this one, brushing my teeth. And so I would would get into bed, and my mum would come find me and say, have you brushed your teeth? And I would say yes. And I would be lying And she would go to the bathroom and she would find my toothbrush. And she'd realised that it was totally dry. It had not been used for at least 12 hours. And so she came back to me and said, I think you need to go and brush your teeth. Okay. Next time, she'd come find me. Have you brushed your teeth? And I would say, yes. But I would be lying. This time, I'd gone to the bathroom, got the toothbrush, (laughs) ran it under the tap put it back, and gone to bed. For some reason, now please hear me on this, I was a fool, okay? I was an idiot. I didn't heed my mum's instructions for a while. Then I did, and I still have all of my teeth. So she'd come to me the next night, and um, she'd realise, she'd come to me, and the the toothbrush was wet, but she'd smell my breath. And there was no mintiness on it at all. 
And so she'd say, no, I don't think you have brushed your teeth. And so the next night would come, and she'd say, Daniel, have you brushed your teeth? Daniel, you say, that's actually uh, full name. Um, have you brushed your teeth? I'd say, yes, because I'd be lying. Because I'd go to the bathroom, I'd run my toothpa- toothbrush under the tap, I'd get a little bit of toothpaste and do, wipe it around my mouth, swallow it, go to bed. So she'd smell my breath, it was minty, she'd go to the tooth, toothbrush, it was wet. I was disobedient to my mum. Now, I do hope that's not given anyone any ideas. The point, children, <laughs> the point is this. If you don't listen to your mum and dad, you might not have any teeth left when you reach their age. And that would be really, really rubbish and a bad thing. Your parents want you to learn how to live. And so they're telling you things that are important so that when you are grown up, you've got some good habits. You know how to take care of yourself. You don't need someone to keep tapping you on the shoulder to tell you what you need to do. You need to be, kind of, as you grow up, learning to take on some of these responsibilities. So, because the word says, children, obey your parents in everything, make it your aim to obey them the first time they ask when they say, go and brush your teeth. There are other things. Maybe you're still growing up and you can tick brushing your teeth off the list. How about this? Doing your own laundry. That was another one. And I won't uh, humiliate myself by saying how old I was. But that was another one that I needed to learn in order to live. And uh, I thought, you know, at that stage, I was going on with God. I was really, you know, I was on fire. That was the term back then. I was on fire for God. But I didn't know how to iron a shirt. And so, however zealous and hungry for God, I thought I was, trying to iron a shirt reduced me to, to almost blind rage. It was like this shirt was just taunting me with a message of, you can't do it. And I couldn't, but I had to learn. That is a good lesson to learn. So it's good to get into good habits. That's the second reason why your parents might tell you to do stuff. And it's not because they're um, spoil sports. It's not because they delight, I hope they don't delight, in making your life difficult and just piling chores upon you. But they want to teach you how to live. And uh, because they know there'll be a day that's coming when you'll be living in your own house, you'll be working your own job, you'll be earning your own money, and you'll be eating your own cooking. And so they want to make sure that when that time comes... They want to make sure that when that time comes, you're well equipped to live an independent life. That's reason number two. Third reason, so we've had, they want you to be safe. They want you to learn how to live. And they also want you to become godly. Paul here is primarily addressing families who are within the family of the church. That's not to exclude families where maybe mum and dad um, aren't saved and children are, and vice versa. But he's talking to about primarily families who are. So, if your parents know God, the chances are they want you 
to know God, and they want you to become more godly. Now again, you might already by now have a relationship with God. You may have, um, maybe even with mum and dad's help, prayed a prayer asking God to forgive you and asking that you could be his, his friend and now you really enjoy uh, praying to God and worshipping God and so on. Your parents will maybe still see areas in which you maybe could just get to know him a little bit better. So, yep, giving God lots of praise, all the rest of it, but they'll still see situations where maybe you don't quite see yet what other people's needs are as opposed to what you want. So you might want something over here and mum and dad can see that actually that's, that might be nice for you, but actually it might be a little bit selfish or self-centred. It might mean uh, that someone else is getting overlooked and they're aware that they want you to learn how to be kind, how to be a good friend, how to be aware of what your friends are going through at the moment, not just yourself. So they want you to be safe. They want you to learn how to live. They want you to become godly. They want you to become a nice person. They want you to be a blessing and an encouragement to other people so that you're not just aware of the things that you want yourself. There are three reasons why your parents might tell you to do stuff. There are three questions that might crop up at this point, especially if you are uh, in this category of still in the process of growing up. The first question is this, but my parents aren't Christians. Should I obey my parents if they are not Christians? The first thing to say is that is not an ideal scenario. God's desire is that your whole family know God and enjoy God. And that's something that you kind of explore and get to know together. So it's not an ideal situation. However, your parents are still your parents. God has put them in a position of authority over you. And there are other sorts of authority that are in the world. So we've got governments... And uh, we've got teachers and loads of other people. People who God has put in place with a certain authority. Now you might think, but what if they're not Christians? Well, we're all told to acknowledge and follow and obey authority that God has put in place. Like governing authority, you know, like the government. Even in situations where they might not have got it right themselves. We're still called to be obedient cooperative citizens. So your parents are still your parents. So yes, you need to obey them. Second question is this. Do I have to obey them in everything? In absolutely everything? Right, I'm liking this. We've got a bit of participation today. This is fantastic. A few amens and a few... Yep. This is good stuff. Yes, bingo. Spot on, because... Verse 20 simply says, obey your parents in everything. So that means that we shouldn't be uh, quick to look for lots of exceptions where we don't have to obey them. Ah, I've found another one. Right, I won't do that, even though they've told me to. So even if you think you're more spiritual, 
even if you think you're a nicer person than your parents, obeying them should be the norm. It should be what naturally happens. It should be very, 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 very unusual if there's ever a situation where you should disobey your parents. The only clear-cut situation where you should disobey your parents is, for example, if they say, you cannot believe in, follow, or worship Jesus. If your parents, and maybe some of them have said that to you, if you've got parents who are not saved and they say something like that, that is, I'd suggest, something you need to disobey. Not with any happiness, not with any joy. If your parents are forbidding you to pursue a relationship with Jesus, then, even then tentatively, I say, yeah, that is a situation where without any joy, without any fanfare, you need to disobey them. But there may be certain situations where you still do need to uh, obey them, even if you think, I don't like it. For example, let's say, with New Day coming up, New Day, big summer conference, specifically aimed at teenage kids, okay, teenagers. With New Day coming up, you go to mum and dad and say, can I go to New Day? And your mum and dad say no. You would need to obey them. You might say, well, doesn't that contradict what you just said? Well, they might not be saying, don't have a relationship with Jesus, but they're saying, in this particular situation, you're not to go to New Day. And if that has been the case, and if that is the case, that is an example where you need, whilst you're a child, whilst you're growing up with them, you need to obey. So yes, we obey our parents and everything. Third question, but why? Really, come on, why should I obey my parents? And wonderfully, verse 20 tells us, for this pleases the Lord. For every one of us who know and love Jesus, there is in us a new desire to please God. And Paul has been praying about this right at the beginning of this letter in chapter 1, verse 10. He's been praying uh, that they might walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Pleasing him in everything, bearing fruits in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So it pleases God to obey our parents, to obey your parents, even when it might be difficult, even when parents might not actually understand you. An amazing example of this is actually in the life of Jesus. Jesus obeyed his earthly mum and dad. When he was 12, there was a big trip to the temple in Jerusalem, and Jesus And Mary and Joseph, his mum and dad, along with their community, as it were, all went to the temple, and Jesus decided to stay on a little bit longer. Mary and Joseph left, not realising that Jesus wasn't with them, and so they went to find him. And Jesus says to them this in in Luke chapter 2. He said this in verse 49. He said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. 
And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. In that situation, it was true to say that Mary and Joseph did not understand Jesus. They didn't understand, actually, who he was. Now, Jesus is absolutely unique in being fully God and fully man. And so he knew his heavenly father and what his heavenly father wanted for him. Nevertheless, at the age of 12, he was submissive to them and he obeyed and he followed them. So there's Jesus pleasing his father in heaven by obeying mum and dad on the earth. So children, that is what Paul has to say to you this morning. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. It moves on to the next verse, you'll be pleased to know. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Or in the NIV, I think it is, fathers, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. Interesting here, children are told to obey their parents. It's interesting then that it doesn't say parents do not provoke your children, but it specifically says fathers. Now, why not say mothers as well? Now, in the one sense, mums, you are not excluded from what is said here. This does apply to how you and your husband, your partner, Bring up your children. But it addresses particularly fathers. Two reasons, I think. First is that, ultimately, fathers, you are responsible as the head of the home for your children. So, the buck stops with you. You are responsible for what happens. Also, one commentator has suggested this. But perhaps the reason that Paul is addressing fathers in particular is this. Because problem fathers are more likely to cause problem children. They might think, well, yeah, maybe, maybe not. It could be a mother that causes more problems. But even in that situation, it could be that it's because of a passive or lazy dad or a completely absent dad that mum and child are having a tough time. So that is one suggestion, that actually problem fathers are more likely to cause problem children. We see right at the very end of the Old Testament, these words here in Malachi, in the book of Malachi, it reveals something here of of God's desire uh, for families. It says here in Malachi 4 and verse 5, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children, and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And so in a positive sense, if society is doing really, really, really well, and say revival breaks out in this nation, as we're praying it will do, And evidence that that has taken place will be actually the hearts of fathers and children are turned towards each other. So it's on God's heart that fathers get on well with their kids. It's on God's heart. Not that mothers wouldn't do, but God is is keen that fathers do. And so when you see a society that is breaking down, that is drifting away from God, what do you see? Not many dads around. 
absent dads or passive dads or angry dads and hostile dads. That's an evidence of a society that is slipping away from God. So how should, dads and fathers here, how should we exercise authority that we've got? That's kind of implicit here. Parents and dads in particular, you have a responsibility, you have an authority in your family. How should we exercise it? Well, first of all, we need to see what was the context in the time that Paul was writing. The contemporary Roman society was like this. A father was indeed the head of the house in such a way that he had absolute, unlimited power over his children. Which means he could sell them as slaves, he could force them to do hard labour in the fields, even wearing chains. He could take the law into his own hands because as far as the law was concerned, the law was in his own hands. And so he could even inflict a death penalty on his children and there would be no repercussions for the dad because he, had, he was the head of the house. What he said went and could not be argued with. That was the contemporary scene at the time. That's not to say that every Roman dad was a disaster and a tyrant, but that's what the law allowed them, and that's perhaps what often would happen. Now, we can look at recent generations in our own history in this country. The picture of the, uh, the Victorian dad, Victorian era, an austere man who's very cold and distant and very harsh and disciplinarian and uh, would show no affection or warmth to his children. They were exercising authority, but entirely in an inappropriate way that was crushing, discouraging, embittering or provoking their children. So when Paul writes to the Colossians, he's not saying... Here's your authority, make sure you stamp it on your family. He's saying, do not provoke, do not exasperate, don't make it difficult for your children to obey you. Don't be hard, don't be distant, don't be standoffish, don't ridicule them, don't just be cruel and sarcastic with them, don't react with anger to innocent mistakes. Make allowances for the fact that your children are indeed children and therefore they don't have experience that you have and they are not mature. They are still learning. They're still growing up. So Paul is saying Christian fatherhood, Christian parenting is different from what we see sometimes in the world. It's different from the very hard, the very... um, cold and ruthless father who is very, very quick to discipline out of all proportion to what the offence might have been. Something's been broken accidentally and it results in an absolute tirade against that child. No, that is not Christian fathering. Now, there is also a guy who talks about a concept called... Father hunger. Hunger for fatherhood. So in a, in, a, in a nation, in a society which is drifting away from God, there will be hunger, appetite in people 
to know what true fatherhood is actually like. And so in Roman society, it was often hard. It was often cold. In Victorian society, your dad wasn't a friendly figure. In our society, difficulties. This guy writing on the subject of of what he calls father hunger um, quotes uh, Steve Martin, the, uh, the comic Hollywood actor, who in 2002, regarding Father's Day, wrote this about his own relationship with his father. In his death, my father did something he could not do in life. He brought our family together. After he died at the age of 83, many of his friends told me how much they loved him, how generous he was, how outgoing, how funny, how caring. I was surprised at these descriptions. I remember him as angry. There was little said to me that I recall that was not criticism. During my teenage years, we hardly spoke except in one-way arguments from him to me. I'm sure that the number of words that passed between us could be counted. At some point in my preteens, I decided to officially hate him. When he came into a room, I'd wait five minutes, then leave. Generally, my father was critical of my showbiz accomplishments. Even after I won an Emmy at 23, he advised me to finish college so I'd have something to fall back on. Years later, my friends and I took him to a premiere of my first movie. And afterward, we went to dinner. For a long time, he said nothing. My friends noted his silence and were horrified. Finally, one friend said, What did you think of Steve in the movie? And my father said, Well, he's no Charlie Chaplin. Just a cold hardness of heart. Christian fatherhood is different. Christian fatherhood avoids those extremes of anger and criticism. But Christian fathering, being a dad... Is not, is not easy. In history, we can see kind of a swing that takes place. You could say a previous generation was really hard and dominating, and then the next generation, overreacting to that, come right over here and are just overindulgent, very passive, very lazy, never give a direction, never set a boundary, never say, this is the way I want you to live your life. Never give any sense of training. Never give any praise. Never actually get to know their kids. They're more interested in just doing their own thing. And so you have kind of extreme passivity on one side, or you have extreme aggression on the other. And actually, for any dad, there can be a sense of, I, it feels like a tightrope. It feels like a tightrope. I'm, I'm aware I could, I could kind of overbalance one way or overbalance the other. I could become overindulgent and spoil my child or I could become uh, too harsh or too critical. Um, and so it's a tough line to walk. How do we then, as fathers, grow in godly fathering? And it has to be like this. Imagine you're on a tightrope and um, you're walking from here. You've got a fair distance to go and you've got nothing in your hands. You are, it's just you on the tightrope and that is very vulnerable. Very easily, just, whoa, just over and flipping from one side to another. What you need is something good and solid and weighty in either hand so you've got something that's actually helping you to balance. 
helping us to still walk a tightrope because that's sometimes what it feels like, but to do so with the aid of a balance, the aid of something that's going to keep us upright and walking. That balance is this. And more importantly, or more specifically rather, in here, we need to see what is the, what's the model? What is the model for being a dad? Because we can look at the world, and we can look at even our own experiences of what it was like for us growing up, and we can think, I, I'm not quite sure I can find a role model out there that's really obvious and that's going to help me to do this. Wonderfully, it just so happens we have an amazing model in the scriptures of what fatherhood is like. And in particular, as I was reflecting on this this week, I was just reading through some of the the Gospels again and looking at how Jesus talks about his heavenly Father. And it is wonderful to get Jesus, the Son of God, to get his verdict on what his relationship with his Father was like. And there are situations where he's talking about the Father giving him instructions. So, for example, in John chapter 12, verse 49, we'll just look at a few snippets before we close about what Jesus uh, describes his Father as being like. So, in, in John 12, verse 49, he says this, For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has given him... The Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. So Father in heaven is actually giving a command, is giving an instruction to Jesus. This is what you're to say, this is what you're to speak. Similarly, a few chapters later, chapter 14, verse 31, Jesus says this, Chapter 14, we start in verse 30. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. So again, the Father is giving Jesus commands. So as, as fathers, we are not to shy away from giving instructions, from setting boundaries for indicating what we're expecting. But let's look a little bit more. In Luke 11, Jesus also describes what his, his heavenly Father and our heavenly Father is like. This begins because the disciples are asking the question, Jesus, teach us how to pray. And so he begins the prayer, Father, hallowed be your name, or Father in heaven. Hallowed be your name. And he goes on from there to describe what is our heavenly Father like. And so he says in verse 11 of Luke 11, What father among you, if your son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So the principle is, a good father knows how to give good gifts. Our heavenly father knows how to give the very best gift of all, which is the Holy Spirit. So how much more is that 
what our Heavenly Father is like. Our Heavenly Father is incredibly generous and wants to give. And he wants to give the Holy Spirit. So again, in Luke 14, Jesus is talking to his disciples there. Not long before, he knows he's going to return to be with the Father. He says there in John 14, 26. If I can find it myself. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. It's like the, the Holy Spirit is given to help us. Who is it that gives the Holy Spirit? Who is it that gives the best help that we could ever have in this life? It's the Father. The Father sending the Spirit to be our counsellor, to be our helper, to teach us, to remind us, to give us peace, to give us that sense of, yeah, I belong to God. It says the Spirit testifies in our spirit that we are His children. And so we can cry out, Abba, Father. That's what the Holy Spirit is like. He doesn't give us timidity or fear. He gives us a sense of, I belong to God. God loves me. That is what the Father is like. The Father is giving that amazing gift. So the Father is generous and gives help. So here we're seeing, this is helping us to balance things out. We're seeing that a Father is giving instructions, does have authority, but is generous and gives help and encouragement. And let's look at one more scripture on this subject. John 11, verse 41. This is describing where Lazarus, a good friend of Jesus, has died. Jesus goes to the family and goes to the tomb to raise him to new life and to call him from out of the tomb. And I think it's Martha who says, "Um, hang on a minute, he's been in that tomb dead now for a little while. It's going to smell. (laughs) But the tomb is opened up and Jesus says this in verse 41. So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing round that they may believe that you sent me. Get that. Isn't that awesome? Again, this is Jesus talking to us and telling us what he thinks of his dad. And Jesus says this, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. That is what our Heavenly Father is like. One who always hears. One who always listens one who's always attentive, who's not too busy on the mobile or on the internet or down the pub or busy at work, got maybe big authority, maybe got an important position of authority in the workplace. So giving a lot there. Jesus says of his own dad, who is busy sustaining the whole universe, he always hears me. He always listens to me. I Thank you, Dad, that you've heard what I've just asked for and that you're generous and that you give good gifts. 
and you've provided help. And you've shown glory in this situation. Thank you. That shows us what our Heavenly Father is like. We could look through all four books of the Gospels and point out numerous examples where Jesus is talking about his Heavenly Father and you always get the impression Jesus is really glad to have that Father. And that is our model. We've got a tightrope that is set before us in a sense. Because it's easy as we look at the world to just drift from one side to another. Perhaps intervening too much and being too critical or perhaps not intervening enough. And what most helps us here in not provoking children, not discouraging them, but training them up to know and love God and to be fully equipped for life ahead of them is God's own example to us. God's own example to Jesus as he was walking on the earth of a wonderful father. So, children, if Jesus is the Lord of your life, if you have decided that you're going to live for him, then please, your heavenly father, by obeying your parents. It pleases God when you are quick to say, Yes, I will brush my teeth and go to bed. It pleases God. God is pleased. God wants you to get to know him and enjoy your relationship with God. But let that be evident in the fact that you're not making your parents' life difficult. The easier you make it for your parents to be your parents, the better, more rewarding and more enjoyable your own life will be. So if Christ is the Lord of your life, then please God by obeying your parents. Fathers and parents, single parents, if Christ is the Lord of your life, let this show in how you instruct them, train them, discipline, but how you also love them, guide them, protect and provide for them, just as our Heavenly Father does for Jesus and does for us in all of those respects. We have a great God. We have a great gospel that doesn't just affect me and my walk with God. God wants the whole of society to be impacted with a revival. God wants it that loads and loads of people come to know Him as their Heavenly Father, when that happens, what we will see is relationships between parents and children just becoming a delight. But things have got to change at some point. If we just look to examples that we've had ourselves, if we just look to our own wisdom, if we just look to what seems to be happening around us, getting advice from the world, as it were, we'll never demonstrate God's fatherhood. That's what God is after. Transforming society by actually getting into our hearts, saving us from our own sin, and then leading us. The gospel is good news for everything.
the gospel's good news for our relationship with him, for our eternal destiny. The gospel is good news for our families as well. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that on Father's Day we can turn to consider just what an awesome Father we have in you. What an awesome Father we have in you. Lord, we are glad that you are a God who knows how to discipline us, knows how to train us for our good, who knows how to instruct and command. But we have a Father who knows how to be generous, how, knows how to listen, is attentive, and who's the delight to know. You are our Heavenly Father who loves us with an everlasting love. And so, Father God, we want to just enjoy your love for us this morning. As we worship you, we just want to say thank you. Thank you for being our Heavenly Father. And we say we love being your children. And we love it that we're in such a position of security with you. That whatever situation we are in in the world, whatever situation we're in, even in our own families, even in our own experience of the past as we've been growing up, thank you that we know this. We have a Father in heaven who by his Spirit is with us and who loves us forever and ever and ever and ever. Who is always for us and not against us. And so, God, we pray renew our minds that we might see how excellent you are. Renew our minds and help us, children and parents, and parents-to-be, to glorify you by demonstrating the wonder of the gospel in how we live our lives, how we obey our parents, and how we bless and instruct our children. And we pray, let there be a revival, Lord God. All the lies that the world hears about family, all the pain that people have experienced in the world, as families have broken down, we say we have hope in you, Lord God. Do a work of restoration in this nation, in this world. For the glory of the gospel of Jesus. Amen.